Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. We have a special locker room episode for you today. We're going to be covering the futures of the NBA's worst teams, looking at seven of the teams with the NBA's worst record during the 2021 season and figuring out how high we think they're going to rise in the near future, as well as diving into some of the mailbag questions we, we received via Twitter, via direct message, however else those arrived in our inboxes and giving a chance to anyone who's listening live on Locker Room, a chance to ask questions of their own. But before we dive into any of those things, Dan, how's it going? I am doing well. How are you doing, Adam? I'm hanging in there. It is a beautiful day in Colorado, unlike the last two weeks where we keep getting snow despite it being April. So I am taking advantage of that. He says while locked in the basement recording a podcast. During, um, what game are we missing too as we record this? That's why we're going to have no listeners, but it's okay. We can deal with that. Um, yeah, so I don't know how you approach this exercise, but we, the stipulation we set was we wanted, we took all seven teams that currently have a sub 1% chance or have been eliminated from the playoffs and we wanted to rank their futures. And I just did it, I didn't specify uh, for myself a trajectory, but I am looking basically at which team has the best chance of being special as soon as possible and sustaining that success. Yeah, the way I looked at it was just it more generalized. There wasn't like specific ranking criteria here so much as just like given all of the pieces currently in place, the draft picks in the arsenal, the strength of the front office, et cetera, et cetera, which team would I rather be a part of if the goal was to win as soon as possible? Um, yeah. So you want to start with your number seven? And I believe you said we have some disagreements because you know, my seven, I know your seven, this is not one of the disagreements because I think it has to be the Houston Rockets. Now they might have done the best they could with a tricky and weird and bad situation while James Harden was still on the roster, but given the outgoing picks that they have, the fact that they control the Brooklyn Nets future draft selections to some extent isn't all that appealing when the Nets are just overloaded with talent. And it's hard to find like the, a, a number of true centerpieces on that roster right now. Like, yeah, Christian Wood has looked awesome in limited minutes. Kevin Porter Jr. has shown some flashes. Jay Sean Tate has looked good in, sm- in a small sample. But beyond that, like, it's hard to get too excited about the incumbents on this team. And you're relying solely on a set of draft picks that aren't nearly as exciting as we're going to see as we progress further into this exercise. Yeah. And I think one of the, the biggest issue for me is for every rebuild, you want to find that North star. And I just, the the Rockets don't have it right now. And they didn't get it as part of the James Harden trade. It seems like they might've had the chance to, uh, had they been willing to deal with Philly, which it doesn't seem like they, they were. And then even having a Karis LeVert, and Jared Allen, but they instead took Victor Oladipo and a first round pick, another second round pick. They moved Victor Oladipo. We all know that story. And so it puts you in this situation where you're very reliant on these picks. And that's great. But when are the Nets? You you control the Nets' first round draft through 2027, which is great. But how long is it going to be before the Nets send you a really good pick? And there's a, by the way, there's a chance that none of those picks are really good if they the superstars decide to, to stay together or if two of them remain healthy at least, and you look at their own picks, that's where things get, you know, a little bit iffy. They're, they have, um, OKC can swap 
for Houston's pick with its own or Miami's and it's top four protected. And so while Houston's going to have probably top three lottery odds this season, if they lose that pick, it does set their rebuild back a bunch when you're not drafting within the top, you know, four or excuse me. Yeah. Within the top four of this, this draft class and the Thunder control Houston's first rounders in 2024 and 2026, both are top four protected. But you've now created, like, when you look at that 2024 pick, you have this two-year window in which you could, if you wanted to, tank. And I'm not saying every team needs to tank, but you do need to find talent that can be building blocks. And right now, they don't have anyone. I think Christian Wood comes closest to being that that tentpole star. I, don't I think know you could put him in, like, the tail end of that category if you felt like it. And they do have, look, Jay Sean Tate, interesting. Kevin Porter Jr. has been interesting for them, too, when he's not uh, – in league's health and safety protocols because of the kerfuffle at a strip club. Hopefully Sterling Brown uh, continues to make a recovery. The, uh, that's it though. Like it's Eric Gordon, John Wall, like those names aren't doing anything for you long-term. They're under contract long-term, but they're not. Eric Gordon was fine this season before he got injured, but those aren't doing anything for you long-term. And so even when you're, when they're not absent bright spots, too much of their future is left a chance for me. I will say a quick plug that everyone should go and read the Jay Sean Tate feature that Mirren Fader wrote for The Ringer. It is fantastic and will just make you root for him even more. And he has been impressive as a rookie, but it's hard to put him or Kevin Porter Jr. in that tent pole category. They're they're frankly not it's even impossible. close. And yeah, I, I think like <laughs> beyond that, like I guess are you looking at like KJ Martin would be the next best option? Like that's how quickly things dwindle up in Houston right now. Right. So I don't, I just don't know how you put them, would there be a case to even put them above any of these teams? And that might be so. a good segue to number six is how are you, you know, <laughs> what, who is your number six team and what would it take for Houston to leapfrog them? Mine, uh, there's nothing that Houston can do right now. I mean, like, sure, it can hit on a bunch of draft picks, but that requires striking gold on non lottery picks. And that's really hard to do on a consistent basis. Um, I just I don't know that the timelines are going to make sense with with Christian Wood. I don't know that I don't I don't know how much more upside we can see from Kevin Porter Jr., especially if he's you know not going to stay available. Some of which is through his own doing. Um, so I, I don't really foresee a path for Houston to move out of this seven spot anytime soon. We do disagree on number six, though. Um, I, I had. I, you have the Orlando Magic, uh, who I have one spot higher Spoilers. than five, and was actually tempted to put them even higher than number five. Um, I have the oh, Detroit Pistons. Um, there's so much intriguing talent there, but I, I'm, I have even more question marks about finding that North Star than I do for Houston. Like Jeremy Grant is a little bit too old to really feature as a cornerstone in this kind of conversation. And we've talked on previous episodes about whether they're going to end up trading him. I still don't think they should because you're hoping for someone to pan out like he does. But that's not really the most exciting, unquestioned centerpiece of a rebuild because other than that, you're looking at a bunch of young, unproven guys like Killian Hayes. Sure, there's been a lot of upside in these brief spurts that we've been able to see him play. Sadiq Bey looks like he could be a 3 and D standout. You and I both love Isaiah Stewart for the energy that he brings on the defensive end. Saban Lee is intriguing. Seiko Dumbuya is intriguing, but just this raw ball of potential. And Is he even still intriguing? I'm arguing against I, I myself. Think so. I think given the youth, yeah, but like... Among those, maybe one or two hits, but 
it's hard to it's hard to have any confidence that that core is going to emerge without external additions. I could see a reason to be pessimistic, and so maybe I'll just get to. I have Pistons at five, and so we we actually inverse them. So it's just a yeah. good we can talk about these two teams in in some. I look at the Pistons, and they've just given themselves some rock solid depth, and then just enough bites at the apple where. Killian Hayes is probably the closest they come to having a North Star because Sadiq Bey, 3 and D with extra ball skills, just not someone who's going to set up your offense. And so I think Killian Hayes is more likely to be that guy. And what we've seen from him uh, in very limited sample size, by the way, because he was injured for most of this year. I'm still played 16 games as of recording. And since coming back from injury, he is shooting roughly 50% on his jumpers, which is, you know, you're looking at his efficiency and it's okay. It's, it's, it's in the toilet right now, but there, but there are signs that it will be better. You, the other thing that I really look towards is you have four rookies that are in the rotation right now that kind of belong in the rotation. I know Saban Lee kind of got there by virtue of, oh, you were so banged up. Still, having him, having Isaiah Stewart, Sadiq Bey, and Killian Hayes hitting on those guys immediately, it also gives me faith that, oh, this front office will, uh, you know, Troy Reaver will do well when they actually pick in the top five or whatever it ends up being this year. I do get the concerns, and I agree with you on Jeremy Grant. He seems like more of a temporary detour, but a competent one. And yet, you know, look at, they have Josh Jackson too. Um, and then Grant and Mason Plumley fall into just like the solid veteran, uh, presences role, role. So I, I don't know. There's clearly not the closest on this list to getting a North Star, and they definitely do not. I wouldn't say for sure that they have one, but I think they've kind of engendered enough confidence with the play that they've gotten out of some of their guys, how they did this year and finding rookies who can play where I think that their future is going to be brighter than Orlando's, which I look at them and they're in the early stages of a rebuild that still kind of wants for a direction. And I, I'm not going to fault them for it because I think that moving Vucevic, Gordon Fournier was the right call. Uh, I do think it's funny that they basically had to give, well, they did give Ken Burch to Toronto for free by releasing him so that Steve Clifford had to play Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter Jr., it's a mismatch of stuff right now. You know, Jonathan Isaac and Markel Fultz, Isaac is the closest they come. I think we could both agree to that guiding light for a rebuild. What is he on offense? Is he just going to be a play finisher his entire career? And if so, can he be their their directional cornerstone? And this is nothing to save all the injuries that he's had. Fultz, maybe he's a league average point guard, but he's yet to show that he can be the, you know, even if you trust that his mid-range jumper will be fine, that his free throw shooting is good, Great. What he can give you positionally on defense, awesome. Uh, he's not a, a, just that like pure floor general, and I think that kind of caps their ceiling there. And then you look at their other options, it comes down to, all right, is it Cole Anthony? Is it Wendell Carter Jr., who's been interesting since joining Orlando? It's not Chumo Kiki. He's going to be more 3 and D than not. And I think that you know just because they're starting out, maybe they'll get a good draft pick this year. But like they're not, you know, I, I guess you have to trust that those Bulls picks are going to turn into something special. And they're they're just in an, an iffy spot where everything feels like a mismatch, right down to, to Mo Bamba, where I don't know on this team if you told me right now who's going to be on this team that's right now, right now on this roster in three years. I couldn't single out a single name to you. So here's here's my thing with these two teams, though, is like if we threw all of their players into a redraft pool and we were just trying to create the best franchise going forward for the future. Like what order would they come off the board in? I think that Jonathan Isaac might be the first pick, maybe Jeremy Grant, but after that, like I'm probably taking 
Fultz and Cole Anthony and Wendell Carter Jr. before I'm taking guys on the Pistons. Even Isaiah Stewart? He's not one of your top I, th- I think so. Malcolm Brogdon? <laughs> I, I don't think that I can take him high enough just given the the role that he's going to fill. I mean, he's never going to be an initiator. He's not a floor spacer. Like he's a great energy big, but that's not what you want as a centerpiece. So I just I look at the upside of Fultz and Isaac and Anthony, and Killian Hayes is the only one who's going to enter that conversation. But I don't like what I've seen from him thus far. Granted, it's a really small sample, and obviously there's so much untapped potential there, but like we've seen more already from Cole Anthony. We've definitely seen more from Markel Fultz before he got hurt this season where we were really excited about the growth he was already showing. So I just, if, if you threw everyone into a pool, like I think Orlando's guys come off the board so much quicker. And that to me was the tell. Like I struck, I struggled with where to place these two, but I was, I was closer to bumping Orlando up to four than down to six in the end. That's interesting because I think that what you're saying kind of almost works against them since when Isaac and Fultz come back next year, are they going to be, you know, bad enough focusing on the right types of development with the other players? So they could find themselves stuck in the lower middle class of these. I don't think they'll, they want to yeah, Orlando has never found itself in basketball purgatory. Come on now. But that's what I'm saying is I kind of trust Detroit will prioritize the development and we'll have at least two more top, top draft choices. Whereas Orlando, I feel like, because they have Isaac, because they have Fultz, those two aren't going to elevate you to being a fringe contender or this great playoff team, but they could make you, you know, over the course of an 82-game season, let's say 32 to 37, a 32-win team. That's I, just, I think that the front office showed enough conviction in moving into a full-scale rebuild that it's not going to try to skip steps like that. The other thing that we're not talking about enough here and would make my, I wouldn't say make my argument go bust, but it would definitely make it flimsy, is they have those Bulls picks, top twenty, uh, top four protected, excuse me, this year and in 2023. There's a chance that this year's pick is a lot better than people were expecting. I think the assumption was going to be that the, the Bulls were going to make the play-in and maybe they send like you know mid, late teens, early 20s. They're not projected to be in the play-in right now. They're, they're closer to being in this exercise that we're doing right now than not. And so if you get right. your own draft pick, Plus, if they, if you, what if you wind up in like the top seven or nine or something like with the Bulls pick this year, that does give them some, some juice there. I guess I'm not placing enough weight into that, but I just look at them and think that this feels like a one time thing where if they're going to draft that cornerstone, it needs to happen this, this season. Yeah, I get your argument. I think I'm just putting a little bit more stock in the guys who are already on the roster here. Who do you have at number four? Oh, we're about to veer far apart from each other for the rest of this until number one, I think. Um, at, at number four, I have the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, this was the, the 4-3-2 tier to me was really close in general. Um, I'm very intrigued by Colin Sexton, by Darius Garland, who has improved astronomically throughout this sophomore season. And you know, we talked about on the last episode that we're both very in on Colin Sexton's future as we are on Jared Allen's future. But beyond that, I don't know that I've seen enough offensive ability from Isaac Okoro to think he's going to be much more than a really good defender who's an offensive liability. I'm not sure the timeline really works with Larry Nance Jr. There's not too much to get excited about in the draft coffers. So my having Cleveland at four is by no means an indictment of their future, so much as being a little bit more intrigued by the incumbent pieces on the other teams. 
So adding potentially a top lottery pick to a core of Okoro, Sexton, Garland doesn't excite you? It does, absolutely, but no more than it's going to for the other teams. I just, they have not the best players of the, the teams to come, but Darius Garland has kind of been a sneaky, most improved player candidate this year when you look at his numbers, and he's shooting almost 40% on his pull-up triples since roughly the beginning of March. I also tend to be higher on Colin Sexton than a lot of other people. The narrative that he just doesn't give their offense a big enough boost is absurd. I think people still view him as a point guard prospect that's not point guarding. And that's just in reality, not what he's supposed to be doing. The Cavs aren't using him in that way. And he has improved his playmaking when you're looking at his decision making on drives for for the most part. And he's he's an efficient scorer. It's not always going to be on ball stuff, but he's been a somewhat valuable crunch time weapon for them this year. He is shooting above 50% inside the arc, hitting a good clip on his threes on on high volume. He can fit alongside another ball dominator. And then I, I think Okor is the real deal on defense, just someone who's going to be able to go up against the, the best wing on the other team. I definitely agree that they need to find his offensive niche, but let's not discount Jared Allen being here either. And so that gives you yet another defensive anchor. I like this season, even though their defense has fallen off their hot, hot start. And I think you and I were marveling and celebrating and might have even declared their defensive success at the beginning of the season for real. We were closer to wrong than closer to right, I think I would say. I like that they force turnovers without fouling a ton, though. That just shows like there's some groundwork there. Um, add another pick to that. They're going to have cap space this year. You say the timeline doesn't align with Larry Nance. I don't know that it necessarily needs to because they might be like kind of sort of good next season. And if, it's, if it doesn't align, this isn't Kevin Love's salary. It, you can just have Larry Nance on the roster. And because he can play three positions at this point where Kevin Love can really only play – one let's say one sometimes zero yeah uh it's because also he's injured a bunch that was a good heads up there i just feel like that that almost improves your team and gives you that optionality so i'm i wouldn't say i'm uber excited about what's going on in cleveland these teams are here all bad for a reason and then you have some tough decisions coming up colin sexton's extension eligible they have to pay jared allen and restricted free agency but they have a nicer base than they get credit for and while I would say that their top-end talent is not as good as the team that I put – because I had them at number three, in case that wasn't clear. Um, the team that I had at number four was Minnesota, because Carl Anthony Towns is the best player from any of the teams that we will talk about, in my opinion. I think the only player that might have a case – yeah, the only player that kind of has a case, I think, would be Shea. And his sample is going to be small because he's dealing with plantar fasciitis, but he's also dealing with the Thunder not wanting to win is a reason why I think that they're giving him so much time off. So uh, that helps, and this is my Minnesota thing here. And I also, when you look at like the the crux of their roster, I'll call it uh, Towns McDaniel's at the four. McDaniel's is really good on defense. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley when he's healthy, and Anthony Edwards with the strides that he's made. If he improves his shot selection and just gets better, I'll say more awareness defensively. Maybe he still gets killed off like on the ball. But if, if he can be more aware off the ball, I think that helps him. Those five players make a ton of sense. They've yet to play together this season because of injuries. And th- there's a lot of sensibility there. I think we get to the point, though, where where are they going from here? They have that top three protected pick um, that's owed to Golden State. If that doesn't convey, they're in a good spot if they want to make another trade or draft the next guy. Th- that's it, though. That's the move. That, because they don't, they're not going to have cap space. And if you do send this pick out, how patient is Carl Anthony Towns going to be? I'm not 
this isn't a compliment. I'm not one of those people that's looking for stars to leave small markets. I want to make that clear. But pre-agency is a thing. And Carl Anthony Towns has three years left on his contract. And so if the Wolves aren't good by the end of next season, it becomes a discussion to where maybe you have a year left before it's a real problem. That's a really iffy timeline. And when if you could tell me that they were going to keep this year's pick, I might consider putting them above Cleveland. But because there's they have a better chance of sending it out than not, it's that's a real concern. And then even if you have it, it does come back to, okay, well, how good does this incoming rookie have to be? And did you was the trade for D'Angelo Russell still the right call where I think he's a great fit next to Towns offensively? And people, you know, I was probably thought he was overrated during his all-star campaign in Brooklyn. Now I almost feel like he's underrated because he's a good pick and roll player who can hit shots off the dribble. That's never not a player who's going to add value. Still, is this like, you know, do you have the skeleton of a good defensive roster when there's when you look at the the five I just named, uh Jane McDaniels is the lone net positive defensive player of that bunch. I don't know that I love Ricky Rubio for them. I like that they've been bringing the, they brought Delo off the bench and they have Rubio starting. But, like that's great. I just there is I talked about Houston having a ton left to chance. Minnesota doesn't have as much left to chance, but they've already made decisions that I think works against their outlook. So I actually had Minnesota at number two. Again, I, I felt like four, three, and two in this tier were all really close together. But the point that you made about the five core pieces not having logged a single minute together is kind of what empowered me to put them that high. Because ultimately, Towns is the best player on any of these seven teams, and I don't think it's particularly close. Like, sure, you can talk about Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Like, maybe you want to throw De'Aaron Fox into the mix or Colin Sexton eventually. Like, Towns is an established all-NBA talent. He's had a terrible string of bad luck, both on and off the court. Um, But when he is healthy and in the right mental space and available, like, he is so phenomenally talented on the offensive end that he is just an absolute... 100% certain centerpiece, which other teams just can't say yet. Like he has carried Minnesota into the playoff picture before in the Western conference. The other thing here is, is I'm just totally buying the improvement that we've already seen from Anthony Edwards. You you talk about him needing to continue improving his shots. Yeah, 100%. And I've owned up to just how wrong I was going into the draft on a number of occasions. So I don't really feel the need to do that anymore. I'm just no, excited I'm gonna, about what he's going to do. Like, the, I would the, just, Go ahead. I'm just going to remind you of how wrong As you As you should, because I was so okay. wrong. I was so wrong. But like the ability for him to show this much growth in an impossible situation as a rookie, where he's being tasked with way too much offensive responsibility and to improve his shot selection and to work his way into that fourth quarter crunch time rotation and look good doing it and be more attuned to where he should be on the defensive end. Like there is nothing that we've seen from him in the last month and a half, two months that indicates he is not going to be an all NBA talent down the road. So, like, those two players alone get me more excited than I can be about Cleveland, despite maybe there being more infrastructure for future growth. And then we can still throw in D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley, who just haven't been available enough in conjunction with those more centerpieces to really know what they're going to look like together. So even if they do have that number, that top three pick convey to the Golden State Warriors – even if they don't have other guaranteed avenues to outside star caliber talent, what's already there 
is so intriguing, more so than what's there in any of these other situations. If you told me that Carl Anthony Towns is going to be on the Timberwolves two years from now, two and a half years from now, more that like the I'm not factoring in this season. If you say he's going to be in Minnesota during the final year of his contract or will have signed an extension, I would vault him up to number two on this list without argument. And I, I can't, like, I'm not going to provide pushback. It's just you have more faith, I think, in them keeping this core together than I do because yeah. they've missed so many chances. And look, maybe they're good enough soon enough to where this isn't even an issue. I'm not saying Towns' future is an issue now, as disappointing as that probably comes to Phoenix and Golden State fans. I don't think it's an issue now. Uh, he could request a trade this offseason, and if I'm Minnesota, I wouldn't, you know, the whole team control over a player, yada, yada. I'm not doing it. He has three years left on his deal. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and salvage it. I just – there's been so many iterations here, and they've just yet to be good, save for one season with him. I don't have the faith in it. But if you told I me, just, hey, he's – Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just – if you, I, I was just reiterating. If you tell me that he's going to be on the Timberwolves in the final year of his deal, I'll absolutely vault him to number two on this list. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been such an incredible 180 on Anthony Edwards for me, and I acknowledge that. But like now that I'm seeing what we've been seeing over the last two months from him, Minnesota to me feels like next year it could be a lot like the Dallas Mavericks were last season, where they're able to skip a number of steps and like put themselves in position to not just make the playoffs, but to put a scare into one of the contenders in the first round. I think there's that much incumbent talent there already. I think that's fair. So am I right to then assume that your number three, since you're the Wolves at two, is Sacramento? You are correct. I had them at number two. My yeah, number three team was the Cavs. Like right so yeah. Um, but if you want to, do you want to riff on the Kings or do you want me to riff on the Kings? Similar to how you want the guarantee that Carl Anthony Towns is going to be there, I need a guarantee that Rashawn Holmes is going to be there. And that's an even Isn't more amazing issue that we're talking about him in that it is what tremendous growth we've seen. But yeah, I mean like Carl Anthony Towns is under contract for multiple seasons and has shown no indication that he is going to ask for a trade. I actually have trouble believing that he will just given what we know about him personally. Rashawn Holmes is an impending free agent. Yes. He's an impending restricted free agent, but he is going to have a lot of money thrown at him this off season during a time at which a lot of teams have money that they were setting aside for guys like Giannis Antetokounmpo who are no longer available. So I think he's just going to get a ton of money. I don't know if Sacramento is going to match. But even if they do, like the core is still him, Tyrese Halliburton, De'Aaron Fox, and then Buddy Heald, if you want to include him. Like even those, even those four names together to me don't stack up against Minnesota's incumbents. Sacramento probably has more of an avenue to acquiring more talent via free agency and the draft because they have less salary committed to this incumbent core. But I just uh, don't know that, or I guess that's not true once Fox's extension kicks in. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know that I see quite as much upside, even if Holmes is back. And that, again, that's as is the case with all of these teams in this tier, I'm talking Cleveland, Sacramento, Minnesota, that's not a negative. Like I, I still think we should feel very solidly about Sacramento's future. I just don't see the Kings immediately making that jump into like maybe winning a first round playoff series conversation. No, I'm with you. And I put them at number two and I acknowledged when I actually, I actually wrote about this topic. I acknowledged it was extremely high risk. 
they they have to move someone to uh, keep Rashawn Holmes, which is the big that's the risk here because I think we both agree Rashawn Holmes needs to be here for them to feel that good about the future. They can move someone, maybe it's Barnes, maybe it's Buddy Heald, uh, but they have to. Maybe it's Marvin Bagley. I don't know if his salary alone would be enough. I didn't do that math. But Holmes is going to be an early bird, unrestricted free agent, and they need cap space to resign him because I assume he's going to get more than the league average salary, which this season was around $10 million. I assume he's going to get more than that. If he doesn't, I just want to be on the record as saying, wow. And I'm just, you know, if he comes back and you're looking at Halliburton, Holmes, uh, De'Aaron Fox, obviously, and you have DeLon Wright, solid backup point guard now, you do need to find a wing even if Barnes is coming back. I don't know that Buddy Heald should be long for this team. Uh, you have Halliburton, you have Fox, and Heald is, I think he's re- not redundant, but I think he is excess when you don't have, when he can't play and defend wing spots. Mm-hmm. You still need to find that guy. Fox, I also, he might be the second or third best player of any that's on any of these teams. And that's also why I, I have him this high. He's averaging basically 29.7 assists and two steals while hitting almost 58% of his twos. Um, since the beginning of since since just before the All Star break, he's not he has not proven that he's a good three point shooter, but he's getting to the line at a decent clip, and he's shooting better than forty percent on step back threes this year, and that's on fifty plus attempts, by the way. So this isn't just him taking the occasional step back three. What Halliburton has done, just all around solid. I can't say enough about him, and just name it anything. And the the thing that I love is defenses almost seem surprised when he hits these shots off the dribble because he has a little bit of that guile in him that you don't really sense, I guess, all the time. So having two cornerstones in itself, even if Rashawn Holmes is not there, that does give them a leg up over most of the teams on this list. Uh, because I don't know what... Does you know, it give the them a leg up over Minnesota, though? Like, if we're calling Halliburton a cornerstone, we have to call Edwards one. Yes, but I'm I'm factoring in the the uncertainty that's surrounding towns for me doesn't apply to De'Aaron Fox here, okay. and I do think that uh, you know Sacramento's supporting cast seems to make a little bit more sense where Harrison Barnes is just going to fit with, with whatever they do. Now, here's the other risk with Sacramento: their future could be set back if they decide to tear it down. They were a team that people were wondering will they trade Rashawn Holmes at the trade deadline? They definitely shopped or at least took offers on Harrison Barnes. Uh, Buddy Heald has just been so up and down. For them, I could see them, you know, willingly taking a step back and just wanting to, you know, the only untouchable players on this roster, or I won't say untouchable. I think the only two players on this roster that you can guarantee will be in Sacramento next year are De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. And so there's the risk. But just the top of it, if you bring back Rashawn Holmes, and I, I would prefer to see them keep Harrison Barnes in that scenario, even though he's on the older side, that's just a really nice four player base to work with. And they're going to have another good pick high pick this year so there's that that's a landmine one for me i I think it speaks more so to my love of De'Aaron fox and tyrese halberton than it does to my faith in the kings and look if you tell me that luke walton is still going to be the head coach you know a year from now two years from now i'm gonna i'm not gonna feel good about this pick whatsoever it's kind of unbelievable that marvin bagley doesn't even factor into this conversation like what i was a marvin bagley believer after his rookie year, you want to talk about me being wrong about players. I tried to be like ahead of the curve and separate him from the, he's more than the, the Luka Doncic footnote. It doesn't look great. I know he's been injured, but even when he's been on the court, a lot of times it's what position is he on defense? I, I have no idea still. And so I don't either. I do think what's interesting about this team is that 
wait, I don't want to say wasting because we're still so kind of students. He's, he's young, but using the pick on Marvin Bagley, it sucks right now, but it hasn't suffocated them because you have Fox and Halliburton. Now, if they didn't have Halliburton, think about how much different their trajectory looks during this conversation. Way worse. And that's the other thing here is that we're talking about Minnesota and Sacramento. Like we can very well be on the cusp of another two decade playoff drought for either of these franchises, just based on the history. Uh, I mean, is it really, it'd be, so it'd be a four decade playoff drought at that point for Sacramento is what you're saying. Wouldn't be great. Wouldn't be great. But I think, yeah, number one was obvious, right? Yeah. uh, The, the Chicago Bulls. Exactly. I was going to go with the Atlanta Hawks and thought better of it. Because that implies that they're bad. I was going to say the Knicks too, but we can't do that. It's it's, it's OKC. hard to break those habits, right? Uh, it's OKC. There's should we move on? No. <laughs> I mean, we basically can. I mean, the, the argument's pretty obvious. Like Shea Gill, just Alexander is an obvious cornerstone. You ha- you can't help but be intrigued by Lou Dort, by Darius Baisley, by Moses Brown, by the ball of potential that is Alexei Pokushevsky. They could have as many as thirty four draft picks through twenty twenty seven. Seventeen of those could be first round picks. Like. Case closed. Are you going to cite me for that, or? Oh, did you no. write about this? Uh, the the thing that's interesting for them is I think you could come into you could be a little bit worried if you're looking at. I, I mean, we know how you feel about Pokashevsky, but they don't have the second guy right now. Lou Dort is fantastic. Is he the second best player on a contender? Probably. He's a great complimentary figure on a contender. That's not going to be more than that. And so now you're looking at, is it going to be Pokashevsky? I will say, let's say TBD. And that might even be a little bit generous because he weighs like 90 pounds. Soaking wet. Yeah. <laughs> you have Teo Maladon. Like that's, I don't know if he's going to be that guy. Darius Baisley has been playing better of late, but I don't think he's going to be that guy. Al Horford could be that guy, but he won't be in Oklahoma City next season. I can only assume that they're going to get multiple first round picks for him based off their Sam Presti's track record. So there, there's the element of mystery there. However, they have their own pick this year, which is going to be a good pick. And what if they get, like, what if Houston sends them the fifth pick? They have a 47.9% chance, Houston, of landing the fifth pick if they finish with the league's worst record, which they probably will. That, like, that could happen. I'm not saying it will. They could keep their pick. The odds would be slightly in the favor of them keeping their pick. But imagine the Thunder going into this draft class, draft class, excuse me, with two picks in the top five. And yes, there's a chance that theirs would drop out of the top five. I understand. That scenario is on the table, though. And they're going to have, I would estimate, at least one. They would have to get kind of burned twice where Houston doesn't lose, like doesn't, you know, it falls in the projected range, even though that's statistically the most likely. And then they fall back on their odds. So, well, I guess they they have odds right now of falling outside the top five, but I imagine those odds will be up by the end of the season. We'll see who wins the tanking bowl between, you know, Detroit, Orlando, or Detroit, Orlando, OKC, all in there. But all those other first round picks, if they want to, they can expedite this process. The next star, I know this isn't the market that you would typically do it in, but they could join the Bradley Beal sweepstakes and still have a, a shit ton of first round picks left over after they got Bradley Beal. And the other thing why I'm optimistic and maybe this is where people might veer. Perhaps they're willing to make a case for Minnesota just because Carl Anthony Towns, less of a two-way player than Shea, but his superstardom is definitely more entrenched. I'm all the way in on Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I know you know this stat, but I'm going to relay it to our listeners. Uh, 
Stephen Curry, Kevin Durant, and Nikola Jokic are the only other players in the league averaging over 20 points and five assists while shooting a matching SGA's efficiency inside the arc and from beyond it. He's also leads the league in unassisted field goals made. That's how tough his role is. Uh, the percent of his unassisted field goals made, excuse me, 87% of his shots go unassisted, the highest mark in a league among 433 players who have appeared in at least 15 games this year. That's just showing like he's not benefiting from the second guy or the an alpha guy anymore. I'm all the way in on him. Things do start to get iffy if they don't want to give him max money because he's extension eligible. I would give him the max money. If they don't view him as that player, then maybe things change. But I absolutely think he's that player. I don't know where you land. I do not think he will be the guy who's going to defend the uh, the other team's best player on, on at the other side of the ball unless they're actually guard-sized. I could see him being overmatched against bigger twos and actual wings. But still, when you just look at what he's been able to do for his scoring in the role that he's in and for even you know improving his as a playmaker – I think that's absolutely huge because he, I would say he's the second best player or second best building block behind towns among all these teams, as much as I love De'Aaron Fox. I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. I think the Thunder would be foolish not to pay him, especially considering how much of the roster is going to be comprised of guys on rookie scale contracts for the foreseeable future. So my, my follow-up question to you before we move on to some mailbag questions, let's say that Shea Gilgis-Alexander decides to retire this offseason just done playing basketball. He's no longer interested in the sport. Would you still have the Thunder at number one in this conversation? Because I think I would, just given the ridiculous number of first-round picks and second-round picks in the coffers, and they still have those intriguing supporting cast pieces that we've already talked about. I would not take the Thunder one. I'd probably take the Kings, and I might even ride your Timberwolves bandwagon a little bit. I just, you would have to, you know... Do you? They would have to have like. Do you believe Moses Brown would be like a a big time? Like, do they have? If they didn't have Shake Alexander, you have to believe that all these other guys are at least going to be above replacement level players. And we know Lou Dort will be there, but you would have to have a lot of faith in Pokashevsky, Moses Brown, Darius Baisley, Maladon. Yeah, but you just have so many swings to aim for the fences with all those draft picks. Here's an interesting question. So, say you have Shea though. And now you're going to pay him max money. Do you get to a point where you're consolidating? I mean, you're going to have to consolidate some of them, but yeah. do you see them within the next, let's say by the 2023 draft, taking a, a bigger swing? I won't say a home run, but maybe try and aim for a triple. Or no, do you think that they're going to be very much, we're going to draft and develop? Because it does get, I understand the reality of the market they play in, but it does get a little bit, once you give out that first max, con- max contract, there is that bit of urgency and so they have another year before Shea Gilgis-Alexander is playing at that type of a price point. I don't think it's even about the the sense of urgency so much as the fact that roster sizes are limited and you cannot allocate that many roster spots to first and second round rookies. So I think they have to consolidate no matter what. I would be shocked if the Thunder weren't primary players whenever the next superstar becomes obviously available, whether that's Bradley Beal or someone else whose name we just aren't in tune with right now, whoever that may be, regardless of how he seems to fit on the roster. I think that the core here is so malleable and they have so many assets that they would be doing themselves a disservice not to be positioning themselves as a potential favorite to land whatever star player it's going to be services. Now you said something that made me think, which, I, I think it's somewhat relevant because 
if they are going to consolidate, there needs to be that talent available. Aside from Bradley Beal, who is the, the other star within the next two years or so that you could see asking for a trade, being on the auction block? I don't know that we've ever been in this position, at least recently, where you couldn't necessarily identify it. Maybe some people would point to Steph because he'll be a free agent after next season as of now, but I don't see him being the type of player who would want to ask for a trade after this year. And two, I don't. I actually just don't see him leaving Toronto. I, I couldn't. I couldn't see him leaving Golden State at all. Yeah, I just. I have no. I have no clue. I mean, I guess like, could you see Ben Simmons? Is that a possibility? You use Ben Simmons. I could see the Sixers using Ben Simmons to try and acquire the next star that becomes available. I don't think he becomes just the next guy because at that point, yeah, I don't. I, I don't have any answers. I'm just, I think do the I. answer I might think, be one of the young guys who's still rising. I would say it's probably Towns if I had to pick one. It could but be that, De'Aaron I'm, Fox. <laughs> he has five years left on his deal after this one. I don't Towns think has three done. years. But that's that's my point is that that might be how far away we are from two yeah. years. Might be how far away we are from this situation. Just food for thought for anyone who thinks that oh OKC or the Pelicans are going to be able to cash in these. There's always something unexpected, but just trying to identify it right now, you really have to take some leaps in logic to find someone else. Okay, so you should just dangle a first-round pick for Grant Riller right now. I'm just going to move on to this mailbag here because we, we have a bunch of questions. <laughs> let's start with, of the ones that I have, uh, let's go with Meyer Rothbaum because he asks a question every single week. Is Jay Crowder the main reason the Heat are much worse this year? And how much is he really impacting the Suns? I don't think Jay Crowder is the main reason the Heat's offense has been, I don't want to say dog shit, but it hasn't been great. Because he's not going to be someone who helps them put pressure on the rim. I think a healthy Oladipo could for them. But the way that Jay Crowder was hitting threes, and given how much they've just been searching for answers at the that, that four spot all year, I would argue that, yeah, he's probably the primary reason of reasons that can be sort of distributed fairly evenly that his loss is the biggest. And I don't know. I was going to say, I don't know. I, we know why they didn't pay him. I still would have paid him because that's if you, if all he cost was the mid level, you're going to tell me that if you want a cap space, you couldn't find a taker for Jay Crowder this summer. I'll call BS on that. I agree. I, I I think that they would have been better off retaining him. I don't know that it's the primary reason. I kind of feel like the biggest reason is that they bought into their own success a little bit too much and weren't looking to make upgrades that were needed in part because of what they had just done and in part because they were still preserving cap space for the inevitable Giannis Antetokounmpo pursuit that didn't end up happening. Like if you look at the guard rotation in particular – I think that's what's been the toughest to overcome because Goran Dragic has not been the player that he was last season. Kendrick Nunn has been scoring more efficiently. He's still not much of a playmaker. Tyler Hero has not taken that next step that so many expected after his great performance in the playoff bubble. So all of those in conjunction with each other has left the Heat with a major void that could have been filled had they treated it with more urgency and not thought like, hey, Hero's going to be this superstar as a sophomore. None is a very useful rotation piece, and Drogic is just going to continue defying time. None of those have happened. Yeah, and they've dealt with – they had COVID and just injury availability. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would would still say that they're probably a much better team to this point of the season, or at least, let's say, before the trade deadline, whatever. 
if they had Jay Crowder. And in, for as to what Jay Crowder does for the Suns, uh, a ton of stuff. I mean, his three-point shooting, it can come and go, but it's been fine this year. He can be a little bit too adventurous on offense, but like you live with that, not because of the not because of all the other like you know, he gives you options on defense. He's a pretty he's a pretty good help defender, gives you the ability to cover all sorts of assignments, whether you have Aiton at the five, Shards at the five. Um, he can be a helper and protector himself. He's not bad in in that regard. But on offense, like he can make some sneaky passes, and there are going to be times where uh, he can um, elude some guys when he does have the ball in his hands if he's being chased off the three-point line. So he fills a lot of gaps for you. And there's also just this idea that he can be plugged into whatever role they need as well because they've they've started him. They've had him come off the bench. Um, I would advocate that he just needs to start when you look at the makeup of the rest of their starters. But he's just been fantastic for them. And to get him for the mid-level, and that's why I've been firmly in the camp of, if you took Chris Paul off this team right now, is this still the best supporting cast that Devin Booker has had? And to me, the answer is yes. I know he had Rubio and Oubre last year, but having Jay Crowder, this version of Mikael Bridges, even fines, like Torrey Craig has been huge for them too. So, and, and Jay Crowder just gives you the, on defense positionally, probably could defend four different positions, everyone but point guards at this point. I know you don't necessarily want them going up against centers, but if, if you just need to kind of mix and match and you're going to switch at points, or if you're going to face the Lakers in the playoffs, that's one player that you can say, hey, we'll throw him on Anthony Davis. I'm not saying he's going to stop Anthony Davis, and you'd probably prefer Aiton on him. Uh, but if the Lakers are playing with two bigs, you can put Jay Crowder on Anthony Davis, or he's someone who can cover the other big. You can at least try it out, whether it's Andre Drummond or Mark Gasol, who seems wildly unhappy in Los Angeles at the moment. I I really like Jay Crowder, and that's why I think just for what he cost and knowing that they, he could have moved him if they really needed cap space in 2021 for agency – I do think that he's the biggest reason they're in this situation. He's he's not the he's he doesn't have a monopoly on it, but of all the reasons you just listed, there were some that were just unavoidable. This one was completely avoidable. For sure. I, I think the only on the Suns points, the only thing I would follow up on is that if you're talking about the supporting cast without Chris Paul, I think you can imp- include an improved version of DeAndre Aiden there as well. Because he and Paul have chafed playing style wise a bit. And if if Paul is not there, the team is worse. But Aiden probably has a more prominent role and plays with more confidence. So that's that's me just further agreeing with you. We have another heat question that I want to get to. Um, where is it? What is holding back Bam Adebayo? And do you think it can be overcome? Comes from Jordan Tyler. What is he being held back? I have an answer if you would like me to. Yeah, because I, I immediately am like a little put off by the question just because this is a guy playing at like a fringe all NBA level already. There's look, he has the like mini pull up jumper, baby pull up jumper, whatever you want to call it now, which is huge. He needs to be more aggressive as a scorer. Like there are, if you're not going to end up like passing the ball on those dribble handoffs, attack the basket more. Be know at least when to be more of a score. There are too. I think there are too many games when you look at his game logs. He ended up with like twelve shots, eleven shots, under double digit shots. Uh, I I think he needs that aggression. Aggression, and I do think that you want him to have a three pointer. Uh, um, I'm not saying he needs to be high volume, but being able to space from the corners, being able to hit some shots from above the break, even would be huge for their offense. And so I think he's 
he is a fringe all NBA player. If you want him to be that all NBA player, if you want him to be the fringe MVP candidate, he still has another level that he can. I think he can reach it offensively. I would argue he also needs to get there when you're looking at just the course Miami's following right now. That other star is not coming in free agency this summer because there just aren't any stars in free agency basically this summer. And you know, Kyle Lowry's interesting. So I get, you know, if you got him or even if you're able to poach Mike Conley from the Jazz, still. His his being more aggressive on offense as a scorer because he's a fantastic passer and I'm not just talking about someone who runs fast breaks he can run the offense in the half court I I think he needs to just be um another Kevin Lucas says in the chat he has another few levels I I would agree there's just you can't have especially now that Oladipo is injured and it seems like they acquired him in part to to fill that role Jimmy Butler just can't be the guy that's going to put the consistent relentless pressure on the defense. And yeah, you can turn to someone like a Kendrick Nunn or, or Drogic when he's healthy in, in spurts, but Bam Adebayo is is a star. And I think he needs to remember that more. I don't know if this is just a mindset issue because I think he's talented enough to do it. We've seen Bam Adebayo put the ball on the floor. He could face up and try and get around dudes. Yeah, I think my initial reaction was just the way the question is phrased, just because like holding him back has such a negative connotation to me and it doesn't feel like he's held back. I agree that he still has more levels to get to. I, I wonder though, if it is in the best, in the best interest of the heat for him to fill that kind of role. Like I'm just, I'm looking at this season splits. He's averaging 1.6 more points per game in losses than he is in wins. He's shooting more in losses than he is in wins. Like How many he, of those losses come with when he's playing without Jimmy Butler? In which for sure. Would, I mean, I context absolutely ma- matters there. But like, I, I don't know, given his mentality, which is not that of a score first player, he's very much one of those guys who wants to make the right plays in any and every situation. I don't know that I want him to adopt like that much of an aggressive scorer's mentality. I think he could stand to continue improving the range, to continue getting more comfortable with those counters so that he can fill that top scoring role, much in the way that like LeBron James is not a scorer first and foremost, but he has become one of the most dominant scorers in NBA history. Like to a lesser extent, I want to see like something like that from Bam, where he's not necessarily changing his entire approach so much as what he's able to do when those possessions come to him. I don't know it's a matter of changing his approach as recognizing when to flip a switch. And let's even just non-Jimmy Butler minutes then, let's call it. They need him to be more of a scorer. And the offense is, is I mean, they're 24th in offense overall per possession this season. It hasn't been great. Uh, they need him during the, the Jimmy Butler minutes. Their offensive rating is 110.3, which is the 38th percentile this year. Like those, he needs to be able to turn that on more. And maybe it's, maybe just expanding his range even more would be enough because three is worth more than two. But then, like, I still just think the shot volume needs to come up more consistently, regardless of what type of shots he's taking. And in all likelihood, we'll continue to see that as the heat continue to develop around him, where just the flow of the offense will naturally naturally lead itself to more shot attempts. I think we're pretty close to agreeing and just kind of saying things in different ways. So we have three Knicks questions. Uh, One comes from longtime question ask or loyal question asker Noah Odage. And he. He asks, um, why are the Knicks the best team in the East and how likely is Julius Randle to nab an All-NBA spot? Um, the first part of that question, the Knicks are the best team in the league, so we're just not even going to answer that or entertain it. He, The Julius Randle question is interesting, and I also just posed this as a joke in the replies. I don't know if you saw in our mailbag solicitation, but would you prefer 2012-2013 Carmelo Anthony or 2020-2021 Julius Randle? 
So those two, I'm going to throw those two. Take it wherever you want. Those two is to you. And we have another Knicks one that's more macro after it. I think I'm hesitantly still taking that Carmelo Anthony season. Um, the, like, If you compare the raw numbers, maybe you're taking Julius Randle. But like, even in the last eight years, the NBA has evolved a lot where it's hard to make those straight up per game number comparisons to each other or even per minute, just because the way offenses approach the game has shifted. Like Anthony during that 2012, 13 season scored 28.7 points per game, which led the NBA. Um, He was more willing to play the four that season than he had in previous years. He was a deadly long range shooter who commanded so much respect that I think we saw a lot of the members of that Knicks team reach higher levels. We're talking about J.R. Smith, Raymond Felton, Tyson Chandler, Quentin Richardson, Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin. Like These were guys who were at stages in their careers where they probably shouldn't have performed quite like they did during what was probably the last like magical Knicks season. And I'm not sure that we've seen Randall elevate those around him to quite the same extent. He has been phenomenal this season. This is to take absolutely nothing away from him. But that was like peak Carmelo Anthony. And we're talking about a guy who's going to be in the Hall of Fame discussion when he retires. Yeah, I I was just looking at it from a single season. The argument, I think, would be Randall's playmaking. And Noah's actually in the room. So, Noah, if you have an opinion on this, you could throw that in the chat. But Or you can speak if you would like to speak. We will let let anyone speak who wants to. That's just the argument that he has to get to. You know, he is... Just the fact that he's age 26 where Melo is 2012, 2013 was age 28. Like maybe that gives you hope that he could have like get above that, but I'm mostly in lockstep with you there. The all NBA questions a little bit. And also I think you could probably argue. I know that Knicks had a lot of defensive grit that year. I would probably say that Julius Randle has been better defensively this year by a fairly wide margin than Melo was that year. So that would be some food for thought. I think it might be an actual question, though. The it's close. Level. It's definitely close. Um, what do you? Where are your thoughts on him being All NBA this year? I don't think he's quite there. They're just. I mean, maybe it, it depends on how much volume is going to be rewarded. I think you also can look at. So what? Let's look at the no-brainer forwards. Kawhi's going to make it. Giannis, Giannis is going to make it. LeBron's going to make it. I would assume he makes it, but at this point, yeah, because he'll play again. So LeBron will make yeah. it. Whether or not you – maybe you disagree with that because of sample size. LeBron's going to make it. So that's three of six forward spots. And I, I would assume that Tatum probably makes it. Is he feels like more of a lock than Randall? Probably some so. People, some people are probably going to argue that Randall's been better than Jason Tatum. I haven't done enough of like a dive into that. Doncic will qualify as a guard. Kevin Durant probably won't play enough. So there, Jimmy Butler is going to be up there. Jimmy Butler will be up there. Is there I is mean, Zion? Open, Zion's going to be up there too. I don't know that he's is he a no brainer pick over Randall. I don't. I don't think so. I'm trying but to think of name. Name. Yeah, I'm I mean, at a bio of center. He'll be a center. So never mind. I, Paul George. Paul. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely, Paul George. Unless he qualifies for the. For the guard spot, um, I mean, oh yeah, I, I agree with what Noah just said in the chat, which is that Randall should get some votes, but it will be extremely surprising if he does. I assume makes it. Um, I think he'll even get some MVP votes. 
I would not be surprised if Randall was getting a couple like back of the ballot votes and showed up just enough to get some of the MVP shares. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's probably fair enough. I, I will say what's interesting is that there are 16 players averaging over 20 points and five assists per game this year. Randall ranks eighth in value over replacement player. And the only forwards in front of him are Butler will throw there and Giannis. In TPA, which I was finally able to update again this morning, uh, Randall is, is 13th. The only forwards ahead of him are Zion at 11, Jimmy Butler at 9, Kawhi Leonard at 8, LeBron at 7, and Giannis at 3. It's really such a mess when you're looking at the, which is why I was stumbling through it before, because of all the time that all these players have missed, where it's like, you know, is someone not going to vote for Kawhi because of this stretch that he just missed? Is someone not going to vote for LeBron because of his cast drain? It's possible. If I had to, if you had to peg it at a percentage chance that Randall makes an all NBA team this year. I think there's like a 30% chance. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say like, I'll say 50% that he gets third team. No, it's at 35 to 40%. When did I become the optimistic Knicks take deliverer? When did that happen? When were you not? Uh, bring up the receipts. Here is the other Knicks question we have comes from Cade Hornack. Are the Knicks back? Will they continue to be a legitimate playoff team moving forward? Or is their success this season is just a fluke? I think he's riffing off the fact that there are a lot of people nationally who have pointed out that Knicks fans are being insufferable in a year where all these other teams have not enjoyed as good health as the Knicks have, even though they had guys miss, miss games, Derek Rose, Alec Burks, Mitchell Robinson's probably out for the year. Still, they've they haven't gone through it as much as other teams. I'm curious as to your thoughts about. I think I think they're here to stay in the playoff picture. I think it's it'll be tougher for them to get into the title conversation. I'm not sure that the upside is there right now for that. But I would be pretty surprised if they weren't a, a mainstay in the Eastern Conference playoff picture just because of the pieces that they already have in place. You know, if Julius Randle is there long term, we've seen enough from R.J. Barrett to believe that he can be a centerpiece on a good team. There's still intriguing talent out there in the form of Mitchell Robinson and, and Obi Toppin. Um, and I'll include Emmanuel quickly there as well. But even beyond that, just Tom Thibodeau has changed the infrastructure for this team and established a, a, a culture that isn't about the losing that the Knicks have enjoyed for the last decade or so. Uh, like this is, this is a better team. It has better defensive principles. It's more set up for long-term success and it still plays in New York, which I think matters in free agency. It matters when players are requesting trades. We already saw like who knows when Anthony Davis was requesting a trade, like how much he really included the Knicks on his wish list, but they were on it despite still being in that tumultuous period of recent history. And now that they're back in the playoff picture, that appeal is only going to grow. Yeah, I do think there's actual staying power here. The issue I have is it could be tough to build off this season. Where I think they should still be if they run this group back, or if you still have Randall and RJ Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, you know, to, and keep at least. I think you need to keep at least one of Reggie Bullock, Alec Burks, and Nerlens Noel for the years they've had. Well, where do you go? What's the elevation from here? Is it only free agency? Are you going to be able to draft and develop players when that hasn't, I would say, hasn't been the the biggest commitment for them this season? Uh, what does Obi Toppin turn into? That matters. Emmanuel, quickly. Uh, can you get anything else out of Kevin Knox? What do the picks become this season? 
you have uh, Dallas's and, and your own. So that's what worries me about this team, where I don't think that their success this year is a flash in the pan. I just don't know that they have the clearest path forward beyond R.J. Barrett is a is a star. And he uh, he might be, so I want to make that clear. But there needs to be another level to that. I would I would argue the biggest thing they need to do is figure out the point guard position. It can't be Derek Rose, Alfred Payton, and even Emmanuel quickly. Just seems like more of the you've mentioned this before, seems like more of the six man type guy. So that's something they need to address if they want to sort of reach that contention plane. But I think the very fact that we're talking about reaching the contention plane is an indication that they've already ascended to the level below that. And if you're going to want to make the argument that this could be a one-year thing, my guess then would just be that this offseason is is terrible for them. They lose all the guys that helped them, Noel, Burks, Bullock, and you know, let's say Mitchell Robinson, they keep him. He comes back, he's healthy, but he's not as good as we thought. Julius Randle falls off a little bit. But my my main concerns are just where do you get that, let's say, the third building block because you have two. And neither of them are all NBA givens at this point. Yeah. But I would argue that it, it feels more for real than not. I'm in lockstep with you. Let's go to... Duh, 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 duh. Um, oh, okay. This is interesting. Um, Moo asks, how is Steph not the leader in the MVP race? <sighs> the MVP race is just always so tricky because how much credit are we going to give to players who are on teams that aren't even in playoff position? Because ultimately like golden state, despite Steph's heroics is 30 and 30, which puts them in 10th place in the Western conference as of recording, which would be enough for the play in tournament, but it's still in 10th place in the West. Um, what he's done recently is just absolutely miraculous. I'm actually of the opinion that Players who are that far down in the standings, if they are as impactful and important to the team as Steph is, should get more love in the MVP conversation, but it's just not how it works. It's hard enough for a guy who's in fifth place in a conference to win MVP, much less a guy in 10th. So to, for, for Steph to win MVP, like you have to discredit what Nikola Jokic is doing on one of the front runners in the Western conference and has been doing all season, you know, by every single advanced metric or catch all metric that you're going to look at Jokic is having a historically impressive season. You know, there's been a lot of frustration among the Denver fan base that he hasn't received more national attention for what he's doing and probably deservedly so because it should be a runaway at this point, given what he has done from start to finish this season. Again, that's not to discredit what Steph has done, the, the the run that he is currently on is is a historic one. The scoring numbers that he's putting up on a nightly basis, the three-pointers that he's hitting from all over the court despite being subjected to a ridiculous amount of defensive attention because the supporting cast in Golden State is not sufficient. All of that is so impressive. It's also for a shorter span. He's missed time. He hasn't been able to to carry the Warriors through no fault of his own into the top four in the West. Like I, I think that... The answer there is like a fairly obvious one, even if Steph has been so good that we want it to not be an obvious one. Yeah, and the other thing is, just as last season, I wasn't going to penalize Giannis for the Bucks being good when he was off the floor, because I actually think it's more impressive that you can raise the ceiling of a of a really good team to absolute greatness. 
I'm I can't reward Steph for the flawed roster around him. Just like it's I, I do agree that he there's that immense value there. It's a, it's immeasurable, and the Warriors would be absolute crap without him. And we've seen it when when he hasn't played. We've seen it when he's just on the bench during games that he has played. That's his argument, though, because he's uplifting a team to fringe playoff contention that I guess would be like a bottom or a top, let's say top three or four lottery team. Is that better than Jokic taking what would probably be a fringe playoff team and making them a championship contender? I think the second is harder to do. I agree with you. It's similar to how it's more difficult to make the jump from uh, being a good team to being a championship caliber team than it is being a bottom of the lottery team to being a playoff team. Let's go to uh, this was an interesting question from Flipsy Tivins. Where do Dorian Finney Smith and Maxi Kleba rank amongst the league's best three and D role players? I don't like this is this is tough because I'm not gonna we're not gonna rank all our favorite three and D players. But so I looked up two numbers for them. And Dorian Finney Smith, this one comes from B ball index. Among players who have played at least a thousand minutes this season, and there are 191 of them, he ranks seventh in matchup difficulty. Uh, his he's the one on the on Dallas who's going to defend the number one option by by quite a large margin. Like that's just what that's just what his job is going to be. That's huge, and he's someone that I think you can put. You know, you have Josh Richardson too. But he's still the one that's going to guard the the higher usage guy more often than not. I think because he, you know, he's bigger, uh, taller. I mean, and so he's going to give you just he can probably defend. They both probably have like four position range, but you're probably going to trust Finney Smith going up against the wings more so than Josh Richardson. And for Kleba, who might be one of the most mo- well, he is one of the most mobile bigs in the league. Uh, that's someone that you can. He's like he's. The fact that he can do so well on the perimeter, I think, is huge. But you look at just his numbers, and there are uh, the only players who match his have a steal rate of at least one and block rate of at least two point five, and are hitting as many three pointers per thirty six minutes as Maxi Kleba, and it's only two point three, so it's not some astronomical number. None of them are bigs. It's Jeremy Grant, Michael Porter Jr., and Danny Green. So that's just a, a glimpse into their value from that perspective. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I haven't done enough research to, to really answer the question here about the best three and D players in the league. I just, to echo what you said, I mean, those, those guys are both really important contributors to this Dallas team for what they do in both ends. And I agree that you would trust Finney Smith a little bit more um, on, on that wider range of matchups, but you know, it, it is such an important archetype that it feels like almost every team has one and those that don't want one. So there are more and more throughout the league, which I think makes it even tougher to rank. Let's try and get to two or three more questions. Uh, And this one should be a quick one. Craig Kirkpatrick asks, I always need more Hornets, Dana. Pre-Mellow injury, between Mellow and Gordon injury, post-Gordon injury, I need it all. I wanted to look at larger sample sizes, so I did pre and post. Uh, Before the Mellow ball injury, Charlotte was 20 and 21. They were 22nd in net rating, minus 2.1. Their offense was 17. Um, Their offense rating was 111.7. They were 22nd in defense at 113.8. Since the Lamella Ball injury, they are 10 and 9. Uh, They are 20th in net rating at negative 1.2. 
They're 23rd in offense at 110.7, and they're 10th in defense at 111.8. I think, especially since Gordon Hayward has come down, one, James Borrego deserves some sort of, not coach of the year consideration, but alternate award for having Charlotte be almost average on defense in some this year. I have no idea. I think they're 17th overall on the season. I just, when you look at how undersized their front court is for long stretches, I don't, I don't know how they get there. So kudos to them. But I do think it's evident that they they need Lamelo Ball's playmaking, passing, IQ, all of it, even scoring mentality. It was before the Gordon Hayward injury, but definitely since since Gordon Hayward went down. It's amazing that a guy this young and this raw and with this little experience playing against top end competition can make everyone around him that much better. Like the growth that he keyed from Miles Bridges was huge. The ability that he gave Terry Rozier to take on more responsibility without as much defensive attention was huge. Devontae Graham plays better when he's available as well. Like, I mean, I'm just excited that there's a chance LaMelo Ball could play NBA minutes again this season and we get to see it again. Yeah, I think he's going to play NBA minutes again. It seems like he will. And And I hope he does. And that probably assures him rookie of the year then, right? I don't know. I feel like Edwards is making enough of a push that he's going to get some love, especially given the points per game numbers he's putting up. I do wonder how many votes he gets, though, for being a rookie on a probable playoff team. Just not that, that obviously these votes come in before the, the play in tournament or the playoffs, whatever they should qualify for, start. But I do think that's going to be part of the equation. I don't know how I would weight that when voting, but I, I think that would end up helping him. So I'd still give the edge to, to Lamelo. I think he would be my pick as well, but it's getting tighter. This question, what has changed statistically for the Raptors drop-off this year comes from Brandon Poulter. I will say one of the things is availability. When you look at COVID, the games they've missed to injuries, you only have, you know, I say only, but Lowry, Siakam, and Fred Van Fleet have played in just 33 games together. When you factor in Chris Boucher, who's been amazing for them before his injury, uh, those four have only played in 23 games together. And that number is going to drop down if you throw in Norman Powell before they traded him and Gary Trent Jr. after they traded him. The availability has just really destroyed this team. I would point out that they are still uh, a positive in uh, the point differential per 100 possessions at and just barely plus 0.4, but they've also sat a ton of guys. They got fined for improperly sitting guys, basically. So I... There's definitely been a drop-off, but I just think it has more to do with the availability of their their bodies. And they, they still feel like they're one offensive weapon short. I think the regression from Siakam at the beginning of the year, especially as a shooter, he's been better when, when he's attacking. I think that absolutely matters. But this is still a really good team when they have their best players on the floor. And I... I Deserve to make an apology because I didn't throw Ananobi into that sorter that I was doing before we recorded this this podcast. So just those four guys playing together this season, they haven't been available a ton. And yet when they are on the floor, which has only been 877 possessions, which isn't, you know, it's not the smallest sample, but it's not the biggest. The Raptors are plus 9.8 points per 100 possessions. That ranks in the 93rd percentile of all lineups that have logged at least 15 possessions this year, all uh, four-man lineups. So. And if, look, you want that fifth guy, Boucher, Trent Jr., whoever you prefer, that number's just going to go down. So I think that plus Siakam's drop-off in shooting, I think that definitely does matter. That's been the biggest issue. And then also 
them not being able to rebound ever in certain lineups is a problem. But that was true last year too. I think I think the availability bleeding into a defensive decline has been how I would pinpoint the biggest issue because I'm using basketball references numbers here. Uh, this year's team uh, is 13th in defensive rating. Last year's team was second. And the biggest ways we're seeing that manifested, and I'm looking at the four factors here, this has always been a really aggressive style of defense that Toronto plays under Nick Nurse. They gamble for a lot of steals. They try to force a lot of turnovers. Last year, we saw them do that without fouling and while yeah. also being able to contest shots and make it a lot tougher for the opposition to get those clean looks. And we're not seeing either of those things this year. They were 15th in free throws per field goal attempt last year and second in opponents' effective field goal percentage allowed. This year, in those two categories, they have fallen to dead last and 17th, respectively. That's the biggest issue for me is that they're trying to play the same kind of aggressive, swarming defensive style that Nick Nurse always loves to play and just haven't had the personnel to do it, and it has backfired. Again, it had people been more healthy. Uh, being dead last in foul rate kills them, though. That's yeah. just that's just absolutely a killer. Let's see if we can do this last one very quickly. Comes from, I actually just... Before the podcast, and neither of us really had an answer. Has Steph become better defensively? My eye test says yes, but the eye test is not enough. What about statistically? That comes from Long Live Earl. Yeah, I don't know that there's really much of a statistical case for that. Um, if you look at any of the metrics that we typically use to, sh- to to measure defense, like he's he's had some slight gains, like defensive box plus minus has risen from minus 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.1. And, you know, it's a similar story in some of the other catch-all metrics, but I don't, I, I don't know that I've seen that as much. And maybe it's just because we've been so focused on his offense, or maybe it's because there's just some utter garbage around him for much of the season. But like, it, it hasn't been that obvious to me. I've always thought that, the general public tended to underrate what Steph is able to do on the defensive end. He's always been a pretty good positional defender. He has a really strong core, so he's able able to hold up on switches when bigger guys are trying to back him down around the basket. He's a decent rebounder on the defensive end, but like I don't know that I've seen tangible growth on that end. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, his guarded uh, the opponent's the, the opponents that he's on, their LeBron rating during those times is the second lowest of his career. But he's just, this has been the, when you're looking at the matchup difficulty, this is again per B-ball index. This is the second easiest matchup difficulty he's had. I do think he does a better job than people credit for contesting things. And that might, you know, why you look at some of uh, the, yeah, it, it does matter. The personnel that he's on, you can tell, like it's not going to be the these best players. That being said, the lower usage, I do also think is, he has some, he deserves some credit for because he will just his ability to, or his willingness to contest or, or fight through, uh, you know, bigger players to get around screens or something that's going to force the ball out of other guys' hands. But I, maybe I'm not watching closely enough for him to have said that he's improved defensively though. I, think I do want to hit one. I do want to hit one last question that I was really curious what you were going to do with. And that question is from Elway Simpson who asked blazers <laughs> what is the the my answer to that would be defense question mark <laughs> i feel like i feel like the the portland trailblazers season has like validated my my preseason takes that you pushed back on a lot or i just i had too many questions about this roster 
they've been banged up. Nurkic, McCollum, both of who are back now. So I get that. Some of the lineup decisions, I guess you could say, are questionable. Like, you know, them playing, you know, earlier in the year, I know they didn't have a lot of options, but playing Canner and Mello together, that, you know, that's not ideal. I wonder why they, Rondé Hollis Jefferson was playing the other night. I, I don't, you know, why are you not using Derek Jones Jr. more? Like, what is the, is it just they think that he crimps or skimps the floor? Like, too much on on offense i don't i and you know he's dealing with a hip thing right now but he's shooting 32.6 percent from three that's not untenable it's the highest mark of his career and it sucks let me be true but like he's gonna be clear like he's gonna give you someone who can put pressure on the rim and just really get out in transition and he's probably a is he a better one-on-one defender than roco who is one of the best team defenders in the league great help for everything so i want to make that at least a conversation i would say defense question mark though is just that they their their other level on defense at full strength feels like 22nd or 23rd in the league rather than the worst or second worst defense in the league and that's still not, not great still and not the other great. thing is too they need to figure out a way to win against other good teams in the west they just have one of the worst records against opponents above 500 in the um, among all postseason teams so Good spot to end it. Thank you all for your questions. This was fantastic. Thank you all to the two people that just joined the room and hopped out as we were ending this. Please, please, pretty please, if you have not already, check out Hardwood Knox. We are a podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcast, search Hardwood Knox. Subscribe to us. Download every episode. Whether or not you use iTunes, head over there. Search Hardwood Knox. Five-star ratings only. Throw us them. They help us out a bunch. Write reviews. You could criticize us in them. That's fair game. As long as you throw those five-star ratings up there follow us on twitter at hardwood knox head over to youtube where the comment section has been popping we post all of our podcasts on there we're posting shorter clips there as well go to youtube search hardwood knox subscribe to us we will be there and then follow the sports math network on twitter at the underscore sports underscore math and look if you've been sticking with us this long you should follow adam and i on twitter as well adam is awfully close to seven thousand followers we need to get him there at frommel Zero nine. Go follow Adam immediately. Until then, we leave you with a shout out to the one, the only defensive player of the year candidate, Stephen Curry. <laughs> <laughs>